For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chad Little. I serve as an elder here at Big Sky Christian Fellowship, and Pastor Scott is with his family in Zion National Park, like Rick said, trying to probably stay warm. So I just recently finished a 30-hour introduction to preaching and teaching class, and the professor there, he ended with saying, you know, it's just going to take time to get good at preaching. But then he said that another pastor said, your first 200 sermons are not going to be any good. So I did two in class, so this is my third sermon. At the rate I'm going, I did the math, and we'll all be dead by the time I'm good at preaching. So, with that, with that being said, I'm, I'm so excited to be talking about uh, this passage, and uh, we're going to look kind of towards the later section about how we can know God and how God can know us. So, for the last four weeks, we've been working through the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. Scott's covered four of those statements of Jesus so far. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the gate. And then last week, I am the resurrection and the life. Today, we'll be looking at the second part of John 10, where Jesus tells his followers that he is the good shepherd. This is really a continuation of Scott's message from two weeks ago, where he talked about Jesus saying, I am the gate or the door of the sheep. If you remember Scott's explanation of Jesus as the gate, Jesus is offering us protection and abundant life inside the sheep pen. He's watching over us and guarding over us. And he's inviting us to learn his voice and accept his guidance, protection, and life inside the sheepfold. Jesus, as the gate, is telling us that we can trust him and rest in him. Today we're picking up a few verses later in John 10. If you have a Bible, open up to John 10, and we'll be reading verses 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run away when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me because I sacrifice my life, so I may take it back again. No one can take my life away from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father commanded. Let's quickly take a look at a few metaphors that Jesus is using in the first three verses of this passage. We have the sheep, the shepherd, and the hired hand. First of all, sheep. The sheep metaphor is used quite often in the Bible. Think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. So green pastures. This picture, this next picture, is probably what we think of when we think of green pastures. It almost makes being a shepherd seem a little lazy, doesn't it? Just send them out there, they can eat. But David wrote Psalm 23 as a shepherd in the Judean wilderness in Israel. Although they do have a rainy season, this is what green pastures look to a shepherd in Israel. And the surprising thing is that sheep don't just survive here, they actually thrive when they have a good shepherd. We need to consider this image when we start to think that God isn't taking care of us the way we thought he would. There's just enough grass for today. The good shepherd knows where our next meal is, and he knows where we need to go for it. It does take a little humility to recognize that we are sheep, but all we need to do is remember Black Friday shoppers to know that it's true. <laughs> Not only are we sheep, but Jesus, by coming to earth as fully God and fully human, 
became a sheep to show us how to live as sheep. Jesus is called the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus knows what it's like to be a sheep. He experienced it. Keep this in mind when you're reading through the Gospels. Jesus shows us how to treat people, how to live. So no matter how sophisticated we think we've become, the truth is we're just sheep. Secondly, let's look at the shepherd metaphor. It's very important to know that Israel's leaders were expected to be their shepherds, guiding and protecting them. Moses, Aaron, and Joshua are all referred to as shepherds. The priests and kings are also referred to as shepherds. There's a passage in Ezekiel 34 that I'm going to read that really shows us that Israel's leaders had forsaken their mission and they weren't being the shepherds they were called to. So I'll just read verses 1 through 5 and listen to this. Then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, wear the wool, and butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You've not taken care of the weak. You've not tended to the sick or bound up the injured. You've not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you've ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd, and they're easy prey for any wild animal. So a passage like this is easy to relegate to ancient history and not think of just about how practical it is for us today. We would use the word influence today instead of shepherding, but all of us, I think I could argue that all of us have influence in other people's lives. And so all of us are called to be shepherds. Myself included, we're designed to use that influence that we have to help people where we can guide, protect, and enable them to thrive. So with this metaphor, Jesus is our example again. As a human, as a sheep, Jesus showed us how to love God, but we're not just sheep, we're shepherds too. As our good shepherd, Jesus shows us how to love others. Hopefully this is making sense so far. We're both sheep and shepherds. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus gives us another image to think about. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He'll abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. So the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. So this is obviously an indictment on Israel's leaders who had abandoned their vocation as shepherds as we saw in Ezekiel 34. But it also tells us a lot about our God. He isn't just in this for the money, right? This isn't just Jesus' part-time job. Jesus actually loves us and stands firm when the wolves come at us. Let's look at wolves for a second. One thing we know for sure is that wolves and lambs don't get along, right? That poor lamb will have no idea what just happened to him. I think that wolves, in one sense, can be seen as circumstances. We definitely have tough things that happen to us in this life. But I think Jesus is also saying that we, as people, can choose to be wolves. We don't have to be sheep if we don't want to. But we should be aware that if we are looking around to see how we can take advantages of situations or people, we're choosing to be wolves. This goes against everything our God intended. As followers of Jesus, we are here to protect people from wolves. So with those quick observations on verses 11 through 13, we get to verse 14. And I'd like to spend the rest of our time looking at how we can experience this next verse, John 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Here's my big idea. Many of us take it for granted that we know God and that God knows us. I think it's imperative that we stop and really consider what it means to know God and for God to know us. Certainly, there are verses in our Bibles that say we can go our whole life thinking we know God, and then when we meet him face to face, he might say, I never knew you. 
We see examples of this in Matthew 7 and Matthew 25. So how do we work through those two possible outcomes that Jesus talks about? I don't know you on one hand, and I know my own, and my own know me on the other hand. How can we know God? What does knowing God look like? There's a difference between the knowledge of something and the experience of that same thing. We all have favorite activities or hobbies, uh, but I think skiing makes a good example of this. You can learn to ski without any knowledge of the sport. You can show up at the mountain and somebody will help you get the right equipment. They'll teach you step-by-step how to ski. But we all know that showing up with a little bit of research and probably the right equipment, having read and preparing yourself to ski would be much better. Having the knowledge helps you. But if you took the time to watch the YouTube videos, read some books, get all your own equipment, and then you showed up at the mountain, sat in the mountain mall, and just watched more YouTube videos on skiing, you wouldn't have experienced skiing. You'd just have the knowledge of skiing. So you can expand that illustration to any of the things we enjoy doing. We can probably all think of a time when a friend who has a ton of experience has helped us learn to be good at something. Or when two people are learning something at the same time, that's probably the best kind of learning where they're pushing each other to get better and better. In any endeavor though, experience is essential to actually know what you're doing. I can't say I know how to fly fish if I've never fly fished. Relationships work the same way. Relationships require knowledge, You need to know about the other person's interests, character, background, habits, but you also have to spend time with them or you won't know them. You can know all about someone, but not know them. I know people who have met Harrison Ford. They would say they knew him because they've met him, but do you think Harrison Ford would say he knew them? No, no. You know what you call somebody who knows all about somebody, has read all about them, maybe even follows them around, but doesn't know them, hasn't met them yet? A stalker. Right? And the, the unfortunate thing is I think that for a lot of my life, I was a God stalker. I went to church. I went to a Christian school. I went to youth group. I knew all about him. I followed him. But at best, I think we were just acquaintances. So how do we get to know God in a way that's not just knowledge? To really know someone, anyone, you need both knowledge and you need to spend time with them, right? You need experience. So how do we move from being God stalkers to people who know God. Our skiing analogy showed us how knowledge without experience leads to frustration. If you know everything, but you actually don't do it, you're just gonna be frustrated. But experience without knowledge can also be very frustrating. Just trying something new without knowing anything about it will probably lead to failure. So it's helpful to know something about what you're trying to do. So with knowledge and experience together, we can know something. We can even know God. So let's look again at John 10:14. I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I have a a three and a half minute video here that illustrates sheep that know their shepherd, and you'll see that this Norwegian shepherd also knows his sheep. Watch this. So if you couldn't see that, he says, the, the farmer says that the shepherd knows the sheep's voice, and he knows theirs, or the sheep know the shepherd's voice, and he knows theirs. You just see the joy on his face as he's feeding his sheep treats. So how can we know God? It takes both knowledge and experience. And thankfully, this is a common question with a few different answers. Hopefully you have a copy of uh, the bulletin. In there, there's a list in the middle of some of the spiritual disciplines that we're gonna be talking about. I'm not gonna cover them all, but I'd like to highlight a few. As we look at these, I'm gonna challenge you to actually pick one of those that you haven't done or you haven't been consistent in and commit to engage in that consistently for the next four weeks. What spiritual disciplines do you practice regularly? 
So Bible reading, I think we're pretty familiar with both Bible reading and prayer, right? Those two seem to get the most headlines. And I do think they're essential to growing a spiritual life. Since the Bible is the primary way that God speaks to us, it's the most effective way to gain knowledge of God's voice. Regular Bible reading is foundational element in learning about God. This is the knowledge part of knowing God. If we claim to serve God but don't even know about this God, things can go awry in a hurry. You'll see I broke out reading, studying, writing, and memorizing as separate practices. Each one of these engages our minds and hearts differently. Like any discipline, all of these take time and work, but God is worth knowing. Prayer is leaning into the more experiential side of the knowing spectrum. Prayer is all about surrender. Have any of you done any reading about George Mueller? As a kid, I remember reading some George Mueller stories and the way he simply trusted God to supply his needs as he built orphanages in the 1800s in England. Pastor Scott reminded me about George Mueller, and I had to include at least one of the many times God answered his prayers. This story starts as the house mother of the orphanage approached George and said, The children are dressed and ready for school, but there's no food for them to eat. He asked her to send the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. Then he thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide food for the children, as he always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning, so I got up and baked three batches for you. Here it is. Soon there was another knock on the door. The milkman, his cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel had been fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in 10 large milk cans, just enough for 300 thirsty children. There's so many stories from George Mueller of, uh, of these kinds of answers to prayer, where it's just enough, just enough for that day. God will provide for our needs when we're surrendered to him. Remember that picture of the Judean desert? There's just enough tufts of grass for the day in the middle of all that sand. But the shepherd knows how much there is and where we need to travel to get our next meal. So prayer isn't always just about talking to God and making our requests. Prayer can be two-way conversation. Contemplative prayer, silence, and solitude are all ways to quiet ourselves before God and practice listening. Being quiet before God is not our natural instinct, is it? Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Pausing and listening is a worthwhile way to spend time with God. As a follower of Jesus, hopefully we're reading the Bible and talking to God regularly. And if we also make the time to listen, we can learn God's voice. Let's consider a couple more disciplines on the list that can help us to know God experientially. When we worship, we are recognizing who God is in a very real sense, experiencing God's love through us as we sing, play instruments, and serve. Worship leads to intimacy with God. Other forms of worship and distinct spiritual practices on their own are generosity, service, and gratitude. So if you choose gratitude for the next four weeks, start when you wake up. Can you move your big toe? Thank God. Can you bend your ankle? Thank God. Can you sit up? Even if you don't like mornings, thank God. Thank God throughout the day for everything. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, Paul also writes, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Being thankful to God for everything in your life is transformational. I wish we had more time to go everything in this list. Sabbath, fasting, fellowship, simplicity, and the list goes on. 
I'd love to hear your stories of how you've experienced God by practicing spiritual disciplines. In a group like this, we can all learn so much from each other on how we experience God. I want to bring up one more concept of knowing God that comes from Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God book. In that book, Henry writes, We don't choose what we will do for God. He invites us to join Him where He wants to involve us. God is working all around us, but we need to know God and recognize His presence to see where He's working. But God then wants to use each one of us to bring His life to those around us. As the Good Shepherd, Jesus guides and protects us and asks us to join Him in His work, loving, restoring, guiding, and protecting others. Ask God where He wants you to join Him in His work. As we wrap up, take a moment and circle one of the options and actually commit to spend time regularly doing that for, next, for the next four weeks. Discuss your experiences with a family member or a friend who will listen to you and encourage you to spend time to know God and be known by Him. About 14 years ago, I was really struck with the thought of how little I knew God. My eyes were painfully open to the fact that I virtually spent no time with God outside of going to church. This realization forced me to become aware of how much of my time and energy were being spent on things that were a total distraction from anything that had any real meaning. There have been a lot of ups and downs in the last 14 years, but God has not let me lose sight of the fact that He is worth knowing. The Creator of the universe wants us to know Him, and He wants to know us. The one spiritual discipline that I have spent a little time practicing is writing the text. This is something that I've found incredibly and enjoyable and peaceful, and it's just handwriting, you know, Genesis was where I started. And yet, even as much as I love this and have found myself enjoying it, I get distracted and I forget to do it. So this, for me, this next four weeks, I'm, I'm going to commit to get back into regularly writing the text. It's not easy to stay consistent. There's always things vying for our attention, wanting to distract us. The most consistent way that I've found to stay focused has been to hang out with other people who are praying, studying the Bible together, and learning. And then we can talk to each other and encourage each other on what we're learning and how we're experiencing God. Even using the opportunity to prepare this sermon, I spent so much time studying sheep and shepherd passages that I wouldn't have looked up otherwise. So don't underestimate how helpful it is to get together with other people and talk about what God is teaching you. Our God is a good shepherd that wants to know us. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is also a lamb, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. There's nothing more compassionate than what Jesus did for us on the cross. He sacrificed his life and protected us from the wolf so that we could know him, the good shepherd. He took upon himself the penalty for our sin and set us free to be able to know him and serve him. As we go through this life, we have a purpose. Jesus is always inviting us to love him and love others. But to do this well, we actually have to know him and be known by him. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't met Jesus, he wants to meet you. Jesus wants to be known. He's the good shepherd and he loves you. Jesus wants to give us life, the same life that we celebrated last week during Easter. The life that raised Jesus from the dead, that's the life he offers to us. We can actually know God and God can know us. This is good news. As the worship team comes back up and prepare to worship with singing in, I want to close with a short story that really, to me, illustrates beautifully how Jesus knows us and loves us and that it's worth everything to know him. The story is by Peter Rollins, and it's called Mansions. Around a large campfire late one evening, Jesus comforted his disciples by speaking to them of a heavenly realm that far surpasses the beauty of anything on earth. 
He spoke of a place that never grows dark or cold, a vast city that's filled with beautiful mansions, with streets of gold, unending expanses of green and fertile land, a place of perpetual peace and fulfillment. Jesus spoke of this kingdom late into the night, painting pictures of heaven until the fire began to turn to ash and a chill filled the air. One by one, each of his disciples drifted off to sleep with images of heavenly treasure and luxurious mansions feeding their dreams. In the end, only Jesus and a poor, unknown, and uneducated disciple were left, each one lost in his thought, watching as the last cinders of the fire began to die. After some time had passed, this solitary disciple looked over to Jesus and spoke. I was wondering something, he said. Yes, my friend, Jesus replied. Well, there are so many people who follow you now that I can't help worrying that someone like me, an old, uneducated sinner, might get overlooked amidst all the great thinkers, politicians, preachers, and radicals who are being attracted to you and your message. And then he turned his face away and continued, I've never been in a mansion. In fact, I've never seen one. So I don't care so much if I miss out on all that. But tell me, will there be room enough for me when I die? Will there be somewhere for me to stay in this kingdom of which you speak? Jesus looked at the man with compassion. Don't worry, he whispered, in a tone that could be barely heard over the distant, contented noises of the sleeping crowd. Tucked away in a tiny corner of heaven, away from all the grand mansions and streets of gold, there's a cramped little stable. Doesn't look like much inside or out, but on a clear night, you can see the stars shine bright amidst the cracks and feel the warm breeze on your skin. In this kingdom, Jesus continued, that's where I live and you're welcome to live with me there. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much that you are our good shepherd and that you love us and that you know us and that you want us, want us to know you better. I ask that you just help us all to um, just have that deep in our heart, have that hunger to know you better and um, that we'd be able to put away some of the distractions that I know uh, get in the way of knowing you, God. So thank you so much for your love and your patience. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.